Welcome to the weekly podcast for City Chapel at Slaughter Creek, the world's okayest church, right here in Austin. Get to know us better at citychapelchurch.com. We're so glad that you joined us today and hope you enjoy the message. Anybody ready to jump into Colossians? Some more Colossians. Okay. So um, I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to go try to go quick here, get you guys out in a in a timely fashion. Um, but uh, I want to I want to I want to jump into Colossians chapter two and and reread some of what we read last week because it was so deep and so dense. We just we just got to kind of digest it a little bit and, and 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 to help you digest it, I've done this little printout here. So hopefully those of you that are note takers and organized and all that kind of stuff. Like I'm, I'm, I'm knocking it out of the park this morning. So I don't normally do that. So don't get, if you're a visitor, don't, 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 don't get used to it. Uh, this is special. This is special because I knew I wouldn't have as much time. So just trying to, trying to, try, try, trying to cover some ground. And you can, you can take this home, study it, pray over it. Uh, I'm not saying this is uh, conclusive. You know, this is, this is my feelings, and this is, this is what I've seen as I've counseled people. And uh, the, the, these are the traps that we've been talking about. Uh, so last week we started talking about traps, and this is a continuation of that. Uh, many of these things were on the screen last week, and we we broke them down pretty 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 intensely. But uh, but I wanted something for you to take home. I do want to make a disclaimer. This is from a it's from a pastor's point of view. This, some of these labels you'll see here, um, some of them are actually clinically diagnosable. Um, I am not pretending to be a a psychologist or a psychiatrist, I can't prescribe anything to you. <laughs> and uh, if if you, I've been diagnosed with one of these things, then by all means, you know, follow the the direction of your your healthcare physician. Um, but I'm 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 a one trick pony. I'm a Jesus guy, so I prescribe Jesus. And uh, so I'm talking about when I when when I talk about these labels, I'm talking about in the general sense of the term. As I've run into people who have had some issues like this, um, I've found that Jesus is the answer for everything that we are facing. And uh, that Jesus, Jesus can do it. Jesus is life, after all. He's what life is all about, uh, and it all comes back to Him. It's all about Him. And so, um, as I as I as, as I talk about these things today, just a disclaimer: um, you know, you may need therapy, you may need counseling. Those things are are legit. Um, but I am I'm I'm going from Scripture today. And what I've seen is that these these things that we often have therapy and counseling for are also based in a spiritual trap. Uh, that's that's happening inside of us. Uh, so there's something happening outside of us, absolutely, but there's something happening inside of us. And so I'm here to work on the inside today. I'll let some of those other guys who went to school for 12 years work on the outside and uh, just, just kind of help you out there. Uh, but let's go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Um, Paul says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive. There's the trap, that no one takes you Captive. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. So the elemental spiritual forces of the world uh, is is kind of a long way of saying the way of thinking, the 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 elemental or the or the basic wisdom, basic accepted human wisdom. One plus one equals two. Uh, it's, it's, it's essentially to say that there's, there is a basic wisdom of this world, and it's not bad, but you have to be careful that that wisdom doesn't take you captive. And the way that it takes you captive is through what he says in verse 8. It is hollow and deceptive philosophy, hollow and deceptive ways of thinking. You have to be careful. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive ways of thinking, that these things depend on 
human tradition or human wisdom instead of depending on Christ. And uh, last last week we dove into a Blue Letter Bible. So if you're new to the church, we love blueletterbible.org. Um, it's a great a resource to be able to study the Bible. So you click on it, it opens up the original language for you and helps you kind of dive into all the whole Strong's concordances in it. And so we're kind of we're kind of geeky about it around here. And so I brought it up on the screen and we jumped into this. And what we found is that in Colossians chapter two, verse eight, it says, see to it that no one takes you captive. Um, what we found is that the verb, the actual verb of that sentence is not to take you captive. To take you captive is the participle, which complements the verb. In English class. This is English class 101. Uh, so I, I broke that down last week. You know, listen to the podcast if you want. But, uh, the, 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 but the verb, the actual verb, the actual action that's happening here is, is a future form of the word um, aimi, uh, which means to be. So actually the verb is you shall be, or Strong's Concordance says you should be. And so really what he's saying, he's saying be careful, see to it that no one should be's you. Really bad English. They don't put, be careful who puts a should on you. Be careful who tells you what you should be, because, because whoever can tell you what you should be will affect who you become. If, if it, it, the, the shape of your life will take on the should of your mind. The should that's in your head will eventually make its way out to your, your, your body, actually. Sometimes will your physical body will look like the way you believe you should be. So your shoulds are so important. And Paul's preaching on this because he's 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 getting ready to, as I talked about, I don't know how many weeks, when we were ending chapter one, he said, he said, we're admonishing and warning everybody because the whole chapter two is like a big warning. He's warning the church of Colossians against this false doctrine that had crept into the church known as Gnosticism. And the Gnostics taught. Man, there's a lot. It's good that you found Jesus, but there's other stuff you should be doing. And the Gnostics went to the Old Testament. They went to the, 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 the Jewish law. They said, man, you should be keeping the dietary laws, right? No pork. Uh, you got to eat kosher. You should be getting physically circumcised. You should be keeping the Sabbath. It's good to celebrate the Sabbath, but we don't, as Christians, we, we are not required to keep the Sabbath. Be careful, be careful. Sometimes the shoulds sound real good. Some of the, the good shoulds are some of the most deceptive and hollow shoulds that there are because there's a casing around them of truth that's hollow. There's a, something that looks real, but on the inside it has no substance. Careful, and, and Paul gets into this even more because they, they were saying you should keep the, the, the new moons, you should, you should just celebrate the, the feast days. Uh, and, and so they were, they were creating these shoulds for these people, and what happens is they were, they were being trapped or made captive based on what they felt like they should be. So you got to be careful who tells you your should. Is, is, is the should of your life dependent on human reasoning or human tradition? then it's going, to be, it's going to be a should that, that makes you captive. But if the should is dependent on Christ, see, there are shoulds. But all the shoulds that Jesus gives you, he makes them, he gives them to you, but then he makes them dependent on him. He'll never ask you to do anything that he won't empower you to do. But see, these, these false teachers, there was no power with their should. It was just, you got you to be doing more. You're not doing enough. You got to be working harder. You're not working hard enough. You need to be better because you're not good enough. And so all of the shoulds were all laid on the shoulders of the people of God. And I'm telling you, there's nothing more heavy than a should that you should 
not have on you. And so, and so, and, and, and so Paul is saying, man, you got to be careful of the shoulds. So, so the, it's the should be trap. If you want to listen to that sermon, that was last week. But, but today I want to dive a little bit deeper into the should be trap as Paul digs deeper into it. And he tells us that, man, these shoulds, they rely on these two things, human wisdom and, and human uh, tradition rather than on Christ. And then he says, for in Christ, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you, I love that, and in Christ, you, have been brought to fullness. All of God fit inside of Jesus, inside of the physical body of Jesus. That's fascinating. All of God fit inside. I mean, the eternal fit inside of skin. That's crazy. So the ancient of days became the infant of time. I think that's what that Tozer, I think Tozer said that the ancient of days became the infant of time. That the, the incarnation is, is much more than just God putting on flesh. It's, it's, it's a God that is filling an ever-expanding universe putting on flesh. And so all of God, anyway, all of God, I mean, eternity fits inside of him, and then he fit inside of flesh. All of God fit inside of Jesus and you in him. You fit in him also. That's the key. You fit in him also. In other words, you can be yourself. In Jesus, you can be yourself. There's no room for your traps, but there's room for you. And this is, this is what we broke down last week, and this is what I, I, I reiterated here on your notes. So go ahead and take your little note thing out, because I went through a lot of work to, to build this out for you. Uh, so, so, at least, so at least check it out, because... Over on the far left, you have the label, which is what we would call the trap. It's, a, it's, it's the thing that, 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 that you would probably call your problem, your issue, your addiction. Um, on the very top, we have pornography, and that's what I talked about last week. That I said, man, most churches don't break this down, but this is something a lot of us guys are facing. A lot of guys in the church are facing it, and we got to be honest about it, and girls are facing it too. And they're, we're all being affected by it, this trap of pornography. That's the label that we put on it, but that's not what God put. That's not what God calls it. That's not the label God's put on it. According to Colossians 2 verse 8, God's put a label of should be. So there's something that we believe we should be. And pornography is not the trap. Pornography is the result of being trapped. Addiction to pornography is the result of being trapped. Uh, because, because basically pornography, uh, when especially I can talk from, from a, a guy's perspective as I counsel guys, when a guy turns to a computer screen to get the kind of affirmation that he's supposed to get from his spouse, it's not, be, it's not just be, it's not a self-control issue. Otherwise, he just get more self-control and everything will be okay. The problem is you can work and work at self-control, but if you're trapped, it doesn't matter. So the, the trap, what I've found oftentimes for pornography is that I should be ignored. We've believed the lie that I should be ignored. Well, how did we ever get to the lie of I should be ignored? Because we knew the truth about ourselves that we are insignificant. And so based on human reasoning, not based on Christ, but based on human reasoning, if you're insignificant, if you're not a Kardashian, if you're not incredibly good looking, if you're not talented, if you're not special, especially in a post, a post, post uh, what do they call it, reality television world, it's an oxymoron. Uh, if you're not like, woo, then you should be ignored. And when, and, and when someone turns to a computer screen for the affirmation they're supposed to get from another individual, they're essentially saying that individual is never going to give me what I need because I don't deserve it. Does that make sense? 
And this is why this is why you can teach somebody self-control and they can get free from one particular trap. But if they don't figure out, they don't face the truth of who they are. Another trap will come along and say, you know what? You are insignificant. They'll say, I know that I am. And then they'll say, okay, so this is how you cannot be that. How you can, this is how you can be somewhat significant. And, and so the enemy is able to, I mean, he can create more traps than I have, than I have paper to print on. And so the issue is, is the should be. You have to be able to resist the should be, but there is some truth to it. There is some truth to the trap. Otherwise, we wouldn't step into it. And the truth to the fact is that we are insignificant. That it, it, when, the, when, the, when push comes to shove, the Bible says that even though we are loved by God, that is true, but that his love for us speaks to his greatness, not ours. It speaks to his significance, not ours. The fact that the most significant one in the room saw me does not say anything about me. It says something about the all-seeing eye, the ever-searching heart of the Father God. So I celebrate him. I don't, it doesn't make me think, oh, I must be important. This is, this is like, like because, because ultimately the reason, I think Burdick preached a sermon called I Must Be Important. But anyway, not knocking him, but he's a pretty good preacher. But I, there's something about us that wants to believe we are important. There's something about us that really wants to believe that this is really not true. But what's, what's, what's wonderful about the cross, what's wonderful about Jesus is that when we come to Jesus, we come to the image of a man who is not important, a man who is insignificant. You'll see over here underneath the, the truth, there's little passages of scripture. Um, that's for you to go home and read it. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says that when we saw him, there was no beauty or majesty about him that we should desire him. There was nothing. He had no good angle. He wasn't beautiful. I think, I think King James says there was no comeliness, <laughs> meaning he's ugly. <laughs> You've heard Jesus don't like ugly. Jesus is ugly. No, I think we're going to be shocked when we get to heaven and we see the most homely, loser-looking person because we, we keep having this, even in Hollywood, we have this picture of Jesus who's ripped, he's shredded, he's got his chiseled jaw. No, man, Jesus was, he had no beauty. Everybody's got some angle that they're kind of beautiful. Not Jesus. They couldn't find any way to be attracted to him. It's his charisma. Maybe it's his personality, okay? He's got a good nose. I don't know. But no, nothing. There's nothing. And so, so if you want to talk about somebody who's insignificant or who is, who is called insignificant, that would be Jesus. Jesus became the apitone of insignificance. And this is what I mean by the truth is found in Jesus. There's room for your insignificance in Jesus because he also was insignificant. He was made to be insignificant so that we could find ourselves in him. So that when we come to him, we're not coming to the opposite of us. We're coming to the truth of us. The enemy wants to keep wanting us to shove the truth of us underneath the carpet. And no, 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 you don't have to think about it. You don't have to face that. You can be significant if you just da, 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 da. I mean, that's what the, the snake, well, you could be like God if you just, that's the key. God, who was everything that we actually wanted to be, became the image of what we were afraid that we were so that we could face ourselves. When we face him, we face ourselves. We come back to a, a mirror. That's why it takes such humility to come to Christ. That's why Jesus is so offensive to people. Because he tells them who they are. And they go, well, I, no, I, I, was, I was hoping I wasn't that. 
That's why my sermons are so positive and encouraging. <laughs> it's like, just like Kayla. All right, next one, next one. We got to get on the next one. Eating disorders, you know, you should be in control. Either eating too much or eating too little. Uh, the truth we're afraid of is you're out of control. Jesus was also out of control when he was led as a sheep to slaughter. He, he refused the temptation. That's the thing. Jesus had all the same. He was what we are afraid to be, yet he did not choose the traps that we've chosen. How in the world? Why didn't he do it? All he had to do was open his mouth. He could be back in control. All he had to do was call for, you know, 10,000 angels or something. And bam, he's back in control. We spend our lives trying to reach for the facade of control. And he had it within his fingertips and he didn't touch it. See, this is what's so puzzling about Jesus is that he, all the stuff on the right, the truth, you're insignificant, you're not in control, you have shame. John 19, uh, 23, I was reading this passage um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it just blew my mind because uh, it, he's talking about the, the, the stripping of Jesus. See, the, the reason why we're addicted to shame is because we believe we should be ashamed. The reason we should be ashamed is because we've done things that we are ashamed of. And yet Jesus, who'd never done anything to be, ever be ashamed of, hung on the cross. And it, and it says that the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into shares or different portions, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. And this is what stuck out to me, right? So they, they stripped him, then the undergarment remained. If we keep going in verse 23, like, there you go. Uh, this garment was seamless. It's interesting, the detail that John gives about Jesus' underwear. You know what I'm saying? I just hadn't thought about that before. I never thought, is he a Hanes guy? Is he? A... But no, this garment, it says, was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So the, so, so the guard said, let's not tear it. Let's decide by lot who will get it. But it was seamless. And that just stuck out to me that, that, that John notices the fact, because John was the only disciple who was actually at the cross, by the way. And so John notices the fact that all his other clothes are like sewn different pieces, but his underwear was one piece. There were no seams. In other words, there were no like cracks where you might see something. The, the guy who was so modest that his life, he wore his best garment underneath. Had that garment taken off in front of everybody, in front of the whole world. And so when when I say that Jesus when when I say that Jesus carried your shame, I don't mean on his shoulders. I mean he knows what it is to be exposed to the whole world. Somebody who's way more modest probably than you. Or me. He never wore skinny jeans. You know? Oh, I mean, the modesty of Christ was violated. He knows what it is to be violated. He knows what it is to have shame pushed on him. He understands that. When you come to the man on the cross, you are coming to a man who is publicly shamed. Coming to a man who is rejected. Scripture, Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected. Well, that's why we turn to depression, because we have been rejected, so we believe we should be alone. Because we are not wanted, so thus we should be alone. And so we push people out, and we press everything down, because we believe that we should be alone with our thoughts, and we should have to handle this ourselves, and we should. And, 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 and yet when we come to Christ, we have a man who's rejected. 
didn't believe that he should be alone. He didn't fall for the traps. And so in each of these traps, I, I, there, there are several others, actually, that people have been talking to me about. But here's a couple of new ones that weren't from last week. The, the fear of failure is a trap. And underneath the fear of failure is the belief that I should be better. That if I were better, I wouldn't fail. And I don't mean just failure like in your job, but oftentimes failure in relationships. I know a lot of husbands are concerned that their wives might leave them. I was talking to somebody just recently who was concerned about that. And I, and I told that person, I said, man, I've had that thought myself. I have a great marriage, but sometimes I'm like, I'm not doing everything I should be doing. I mean, and there's probably a guy out there who would happily do every, who's better at doing the stuff I'm bad at doing. You know what I mean? And so maybe it's just that guys are competitive or maybe it's, I don't know, just from a guy's perspective. But I know as Roe has counseled women, especially women whose husbands have struggled with pornography, they've asked themselves, am I enough? Am I pretty enough? Am I skinny enough for my husband? And I've asked myself as a husband, am I, uh, I don't know, do I, do I have enough words of encouragement? Because Roe is a big words of encouragement person. I am not a words of encouragement person. So I don't gush with words of affirmation. You might have noticed that, you know. <laughs> maybe you picked the, maybe you got the hint. I'd be happy to be honest with you, but, uh, you know, I'm not really a cheerleader as such. That's not my gifting or my calling, but, but no, so, so, so I've wondered, you know, but man, this, this happens in church too, because, because we, because God uses us. People are worth it, right? God uses us to bless people and feed people. But what happens when the people you're blessing still don't come close to Jesus? What happens when your kids that you sowed into, they still don't believe they don't follow the same God that you're following? What happens when you are not enough? What happens when your preaching's not enough and your prayer's not enough and your worship's not enough? What happens when all of your outreach is not enough? Well, I can tell you one trap, just get better. Like I was, I was, Ro and I were talking about this and she was talking about how women, you know, wondering, you know, should I be skinnier? And I said, yeah, the really unfair thing about that is I can't say that in church. But here I am. Uh, no, you can't, you can't, like, like if a, if a pastor were to stand up and say, women, you ought to be skinnier for your husbands. Like you would be fired. Pretty much immediately, everybody leave the church. Because you can't say that because, well, you can't tell women that they're not enough. But guys, pretty much every Father's Day, we're told, need to step it up, guys. Need to get better. Need to be better. And I don't know if it's just I'm just sympathetic toward guys because I am a guy. But I'm just like, man, I, I keep getting the message that I'm probably not doing it. And it's, and it's, and it's, and it's, and it's subtle. It's not like you're, you're an awful person. It's just you could just, just step it up. Just get better. Be a better Christian, be a better spouse, be a better parent. The pursuit of better be a trap because you believe, well, you don't want to face the belief that you're not enough. Here's my positive, encouraging, Caleb message for you. You are not enough for your spouse, not enough for your kids, not enough. I'm not enough for this church. I'm not organized enough and not smart enough and not good enough preacher. I, we're not, we're, none of us are enough for the demands that the world has placed on us. And yet, and yet, what do you do with the truth? 
What do you what do you do with that truth? Just walk away and say, I'm not enough. I just oh, well, take me as I am, honey. I'm gonna give you one compliment a month. Just deal with it, because darn it, I'm not enough. That's just the way I am. It's interesting because, you know, there's all kinds of traps to that. So as soon as you come to the truth, the enemy's going to select a new trap for you. Say, here's what you do with that. When we face Jesus, we face a man who is not enough because they brought Jesus out in front of all of Jerusalem, his home, the, the main city, the capital of the place that he loved, that he, his bride, that he wept over, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, how I longed to gather you as a sheep gathers her hens, but you would not. He, 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 they, they, Pilate brings Jesus out and, and, and a loser, Barabbas, criminal, and he says, all right, which one do you want? And they say, give us Barabbas. Wait, what has Barabbas done for any of you? Any of you? Did he do anything? except steal from that guy's business and cheat on that guy's taxes? Did Barabbas do anything for anybody? No. And yet Jesus, I know he fed at least 5,000 of them one time. They got a free Chick-fil-A at least. Like, I know that. He, he healed several blind eyes in that city. He raised the one family's kid from the dead on the, like, on the procession, the funeral procession. He touched the casket. The kid got up. I know that Jesus, like... He, he, I know 10 of them were lepers who are no longer having leprosy. I mean, the, and then scripture says that he did much, much more than could even be recorded in the gospels. And he's not enough for you? You want a Barabbas? And yet we don't see Jesus saying, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Does anybody have any fish and loaves? Because I mean, I can make this right right now. We'll just get another breakfast for you. We'll, get, we'll make another lunch for you. We'll feed a few more of you. I'll, I'll just, uh, uh, anybody sick in here? I could, I, 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 I'm, I'm sure I could do something. Oh, he just stands there. He says, I'm not enough for my bride. He's not depressed about it. He's thinking about something else. This is what I've always wondered. What, what is going on inside? Because I see what's going on outside. I see Father forgive them for they don't know what they do. And I'm like, how do you, how do, you do that? I see him standing there resisting the urge to be better, get people to like him. I'm like, how do you, how do, you do that? Because it would be one thing if he was just bitter. Then he wouldn't say, Father, forgive them. So he's not bitter. But he was resisting the urge to get better. He's resisting the trap. He's stepping away from that. So let's keep reading in Colossians 2, verse 11. In him, in Jesus, we, you also were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self was ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Uh, does everybody understand pretty much what circumcision is, or do I have to go into the gory details? We're good? Cool, nice. Essentially, circumcision, I would say the sort of the, the sanitized version is it's the painful removal of uh, a part of a man's anatomy that he probably thought he couldn't live without. That's, that's, that's kind of where I, would, where I would leave that one. And Paul says, in Christ, we were circumcised. With a circumcision, not the kind that's performed by hand, so we're not talking about physical anatomy here. But we have been circumcising Christ. Your whole self, not just a part of your anatomy, your whole self was ruled by the flesh, and it was put off, it was cut off when you were circumcised by Christ. 
Hmm. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So here at the end of the sermon, I want to give you my sermon title, and hopefully by now it'll actually make sense. Uh, And it is that Jesus nailed it. I'm just saying, that's Jesus nailed it. Nailed what? Well, he nailed the record of our wrong to the cross. But also, he took that part of us that, well, um, let's see, the painful removal of that bit of us that we felt we couldn't live without. See, that's, that's on, the, on, on the far right of your chart, there is this truth about you. And every time the enemy lures you into a trap, he pushes that button. And there are several other buttons as well. But, but here's, here, here's my admonishment to you. When, when praying about what the truth of your trap is, never go outside of Jesus. Only identify with the truths that Scripture has taught us to be true about Jesus, which is why I got Scripture under each one. If you don't have a Scripture for how Jesus also was that, it's not true. So don't, so, so don't listen to the enemy, the same guy who got you in a trap, tell you what the truth is. That doesn't work, all right? So he might, he might say, oh, the truth is you're just a loser and you need to kill yourself. No, that's, that's not Jesus. Jesus wasn't a loser, okay? So, 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 so don't, don't identify with the truth that's not in Scripture. So we have verse in Scripture for the truth that was Jesus, which is also many of us. The problem is this truth is not positive and encouraging. This is it's kind of depressing sometimes. It's a difficult truth to handle. And so what Jesus nailed to the cross was the, the truth about who we are. So he, the thing that we couldn't remove from ourselves about who we are, he took that to the cross. And he responded in such a way, and I know grammatically this is not what Paul meant, that he nailed it. Um, but I see it as the way that Jesus responded is the way that we can also respond. The way that he dealt with the truth is the way that we can also deal with the truth. And so I want to give you a passage um, to study this week, and I, and I want to go over it just quickly with you. Um, we're going to just throw up most of it up there on the screen right now, but um, in this handout, you have the label, you have the should be, you have the truth, and then you have a blank for how Jesus nailed it, okay? I guarantee each and every one of these is found in this passage of Scripture that I'm going to share, this, this chapter I'm going to share with you. Psalm chapter 22. Psalm chapter 22, Jesus begins quoting this on the cross. I don't have time to get into it, but when he's hanging on the cross, he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Most people think that that means, or at least I've heard it preached, that that means that Jesus was forsaken by his father. Um, This is not a biblical fact. Jesus said that actually before he went to the cross, he said, you all are going to forsake me, but my father will never leave me. Um, it's also odd that Jesus would call his father God. He never referred to him in that way. He, when he was praying to him, he was father. Jesus, how should we pray? Well, pray like this. Our father who art in heaven, how will be thy name? He always referred to him as father. So it's very strange. It's also strange that he would quote literally the Hebrew since Jesus didn't speak Hebrew. He spoke Aramaic and none of the people around him spoke Hebrew either. That's why they thought he was calling for Elijah when he said Eli 
because that sounds a lot like Elijah. And so I believe, and, and I'm not the only one, but I, I believe that he was actually quoting Psalm 22. In the same way that, well, I don't know, if I was standing up here with a bunch of sheep and I said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and then just didn't say anything else, you would know what I'm talking about. You would know that I'm, I'm visually demonstrating a biblical truth. And I'll give you the starter point in case you, you missed the analogy, but then you need to go read to find out that he anoints my head with oil, that my cup runs over, that all the other good stuff about that, surely goodness and mercy. Well, just before Psalm 23 is Psalm 22, and Jesus quotes this on the cross, and this has given me more of an insight into what Jesus is thinking and feeling, I think, than anything, because he quotes this passage. He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Then there's this, this period of darkness settles over the whole land. There's an earthquake, and it's a scary thing. And then he cries out. Well, then he says, I'm thirsty, and they give him something to drink. And then he cries out. He says, it is finished. Another translation for it is finished is he has done it. And what's interesting is Psalm 22 starts with the words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And then it ends, uh, if we go down to verse 31, uh, it's kind of small print. I was trying to shove it all on here. Uh, if we go down to verse 31, they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it declaring to a people yet unborn. This was written a thousand years before Christ, roughly. So I want to look at Psalm 22, and in your own private time, I want you to go through Psalm 22, because in Psalm 22, I believe, are statements where Jesus is referencing each of these lies that we've been talking about. All the traps that he could have went in, we see actually what he's doing instead. And so if we go back to the beginning of Psalm 22, I just want to point out a couple of things. I've underlined a whole bunch of red uh, that have to do with the cross specifically. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says that. But then down in verse 6, he says, I am a worm and not a man. Next time you're afraid of being insignificant, <laughs> Jesus said, I'm, these people see me as nothing, as a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They laugh, they insult, shaking their heads, saying, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. That's a direct... I mean, the Pharisees said that in Matthew 27. He trusted in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Down to verse 14, he says, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. That's what happens in crucifixion. Your shoulders, especially elbows, all of your bones begin to fall out of joint. He says, my heart is turned to wax. It's melted within me. When the, when the soldier pierced Jesus' side, blood and water flowed and most physicians say that's because the only reason why there'd be water around your heart is if your heart had ruptured and you, it created a water sack around your heart, which is which could explain why he was sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. That Jesus' heart had ruptured and blood had got into his sweat glands. And here he says, my heart has turned to wax. It's melted within me. My mouth is dried like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. He was crucified between two thieves. They pierced my hands and my feet. Crucifixion wasn't even around when David wrote this. It was invented by the Romans some 900 years later. There was no piercing of hands. and This was not a common way to die. What David is writing about under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit it must have seemed so odd to people who read this. David, when were your hands and feet pierced? 
This is for a people yet unborn. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. They divide my clothes, plural, my outer, my outer garments, and they cast lots for my garment, singular, my underwear. They, they, this is, this is, this is clearly to me. I, I don't know how anybody could say this is not about the crucifixion. And, and, and yet within this, we see some things that Jesus, I believe, is thinking. And as we look down the list here, I should be ignored because you are insignificant. I want to give you a couple of scriptures just quickly um, from this passage. Psalm twenty-two, nineteen. If you're writing and taking notes, you can write that and how Jesus nailed it. Psalm twenty-two, nineteen says, But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. This is how Jesus nailed temptation to believe I should be ignored. You, Lord, are not far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Psalm 22, 9 through 10 is how Jesus dealt with the need to be in control. He says, you brought me out of the womb. Remember, when Christ was born, he was born in Bethlehem, far away from his midwife. His mom didn't have a midwife. He was in a cave, and he had no midwife. And so Jesus remembers the day, the night he was born, oh, holy night. You brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breath, breast. From birth, I was cast on you. He's saying, I've never been in control. I've always been leaning on you. In regard to his shame, he says, in you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you delivered them. They cried to you and they were saved. Sometimes it takes faith to believe in salvation. You don't feel. But he said, those who trust in you were not put to shame. John 16, 32 tells us that he was never alone. Even though he had been rejected by men, even though even his own disciples, he was never alone. The need to, to create justice for yourself. Psalm 22 22 verses through 23 says, I will declare your name to the, your name to the people. I'm not going to declare justice. I want to declare the name of God. In the assembly, I will praise you because he's the one who's worthy even in the midst of injustice. He's the one who's still worthy even in the midst of, of pain. For fear of failure, in verse 27 and 28, he says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. Not because I did something good, but because, because God and all the families of the nation will bow before him for dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. The sooner I can submit to him, the sooner I can allow his plan to come to fruition in my life, the sooner my family will turn to him, the sooner all nations will turn to him. I'm not responsible for your salvation. I'm responsible to fully submit to the dominion of Christ. And then God makes me a better husband. And then God makes me a better father. And then God makes me a better pastor. When I submit to his dominion, if I'm chasing what you want and trying to be what you need, I'll never be enough. But as soon as I submit to the one who is enough, who is sufficient, who is overall, I submit to his dominion. He's in charge. This is his church. This is his town. This is his city. This is his world. It's not up to me to save everybody. I have to submit myself to his dominion. Psalm 22, verse 24, he, was, he, he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. Next time you're afraid that you are unliked by other people because you are. It's just true. I know you're trying to not get them to not like you. They already don't like you. Done. Too late. 
As soon as they saw your skin color, they decided. As soon as they saw the way you dressed, they decided. As soon as they saw your, what church you went to, they decided. As soon as they heard your accent, they decided. There's, I mean, it's crazy, but I'm telling you, is they already sized you up. You're playing catch up. You're ne you'll never catch up. Instead, Jesus says, I'm not, I know I've been rejected by these people, but he has not despised or scorned the suffering. The same thing that causes them to despise me does not cause my father to despise me. He has not despised or scorned me. He has not hidden his face from me. He has listened to my cry for help. If you believe in a God who would turn his back on his son, no wonder you think every time you mess up, he turns his back on you. He did not turn his face on Jesus. He does not despise the, 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 the one who is despised. He, he, he doesn't do it from you. And now, the final one, whenever we, we, we believe we're looking for value, he says in verse 25, he says, from you comes the theme of my praise. Not the fact that I'm enough, not the fact that I'm valuable, not the fact that people like me, but the fact that he is faithful and he is good. From you comes the theme of my praise. The poor will eat and be satisfied. He says, let me, let, let me just take my place there. All the poor and powerless. I'll just step into that slot. I'll fall under that category because the poor will eat and be satisfied. I don't care how much money you have. You've been able to feed yourself. That's the question. The poor will eat and be satisfied. It's all because of the blood of Jesus. And so today I want us, as a church, as we close, just to take communion together. Just to celebrate the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf and for our forgiveness and for our sanctification. He shed his blood that he might enter us into a new covenant, a new agreement with God. He his body was broken that he might circumcise our hearts that he might cut away and take away and that he might show us what to do with the truth of who we are he might leave us an example that we should follow in his steps